Turn with me this morning to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And we'll begin reading with verse 4. Revelation 1 verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the Word of God. Uh, I think you would probably agree with this statement. That we need uh, a higher view of the Christ of Christmas. We need a higher view of the Christ of Christmas. Typically, and rightly so, when we think of Jesus around Christmas time, we think about the the baby in the manger. And that's true. Jesus was a baby in a manger. But the babe in the manger is often merely one Christmas icon among many. It gets lumped in with Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman. Uh, putting the nativity scene out in our yards or maybe on the mantle in the living room or however you do that, maybe you plug it in and the fan blows it up like a big balloon. Uh, however it is you put your nativity scene up at Christmas time, it, it might bring about warm feelings of happiness and maybe some nostalgia. But then again, so does riding around in the car looking at Christmas lights or going to Granny's house for Christmas breakfast or dinner. There's something solemn, isn't there, uh, about hearing uh, Linus quote Luke 2 at the end of the, the Christmas program. When Charlie Brown just wants somebody to tell him what Christmas is really all about. But the takeaway from that passage, from the reading of Luke 2, has to be something more than just to go and fix up somebody's ugly Christmas tree, Right? I'm not knocking peanuts. I got my Snoopy tie on today. But it has to be more than, than just that. You see, if we remember baby Jesus as merely baby Jesus, we'll miss the whole point of what we're celebrating at Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Christ. Yes, without the birth, the other things that happened in his life would not have happened. But we celebrate the birth of Christ because of all that that birth would lead to and still is leading to. We celebrate the birth of Christ Jesus by celebrating all the glory that was wrapped up in that body of a 
little baby in Bethlehem. And the Apostle John helps us in seeing the fullness of Christ in Revelation 1. We're not going to do a full-blown study of the whole book of Revelation, but we will spend some time here. The first three chapters of Revelation are specifically addressed to seven churches that were located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And there's a sense in which those seven churches to which John wrote and to which Jesus spoke in these chapters represent all kinds of churches and uh, all the churches that have existed throughout history and even today. Now, after the new year begins, we'll move into chapters two and chapter uh, chapters two and three and see the messages that Jesus himself uh, sent to those churches through John. But for these couple of Sundays before Christmas, I want to look here in the first chapter at how Jesus reveals himself to John and to the churches. And I want us to ask God to help us to see the fullness of the glory of Christ. The Jesus in Revelation 1 is the same Jesus that we read about in Luke 2. The baby in the manger simply shows the incomprehensible humility of the exalted Lord of heaven. So John speaks of Jesus in the context of the Trinity, what we just saw in the passage, from whom grace and peace come. He speaks of the Father. He says there in verse 4, of him who is and who was and who is to come. That's just a long, drawn-out way of using that, that Old Testament name for God, I am, Yahweh, the self-existent eternal one. He has no beginning because he is himself the beginning of all things. He will have no end because everything finds its consummation in him. He says there in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We would say the A and the Z. And everything in between comes out of and goes into him. He is, I am. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He uh, speaks of the spirit there in verse 4 as well. He says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, you'll find if you ever study the book of Revelation that symbolic language is very frequently employed in the book. And sometimes that symbolic language is sort of hard to, to decipher and to understand, but this one really seems straightforward. Isaiah uh, speaks of the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so whenever John here speaks of the seven spirits who are before the throne, he's speaking of the one Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. Seven, the number seven in Revelation typically uh, conveys the idea of completeness, fullness. And that's what we see of the Spirit here. But then right alongside this revelation of the Father and of the Spirit, he says, and from Jesus Christ, the Son. You see, Jesus is equal with the Father and the Spirit in the Godhead. The Father is referred to as the I Am, the one who is and was and is to come. And what name did Jesus so frequently speak of himself? He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, I am the light of the world. I am 
the vine. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. The spirit is present in all the church, but in the book of Acts, whose spirit is it? He's referred to as the spirit of Jesus, the very son of God. You see, God is one in essence. There is only one God. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God who is one in essence, but exists in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. We talked about it a little bit in, in Sunday school this morning about the Council of Nicaea. And if it wasn't Christmas time, I wouldn't waste your time with this story because it may tr be true and it may not be. Uh, St. Nicholas may have been present at that council when Arius was uh, arguing that Jesus was not one with the Father, that he was of a similar essence as the Father, a similar substance, but not of the same, that Jesus was a created being. And the legend or the story goes that at, when he was arguing that, St. Nicholas got so angry at Arius that he came and punched him in the face for arguing that Jesus wasn't one with the Father. But that's exactly who he is. He is of the same substance, the same essence as the Father and the Spirit. And so the baby in the manger that we celebrate at Christmas was nothing less than the God of the universe made flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So how does John describe Jesus in his glory in this passage? Let me just give you three ways that he describes Jesus uh, the first is found in verse 4, that he is the faithful son. He is the faithful son. Excuse me, verse 5, and from Jesus, the faithful witness. You see, it was the ministry of Jesus to come and to reveal the Father to his people. Jesus said just that in John 14. He told his disciples, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you, have, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is sufficient for us. Just show us the Father. No big deal, right, Jesus? And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, Philip, and yet you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? It was Jesus' job, his mission when he came to earth to reveal the Father to his people and he conducted himself in that ministry and accomplished it faithfully. He was faithful even unto death. Faithful to obey the will of the Father even unto death. The word witness there is, in Greek is the word martus. It's the same word where we get our word martyr. Jesus was faithful as a witness of God on earth, but he was also faithful to the point of being put to death. That though it would have been agonizing and was agonizing for him in his flesh, he chose obedience to the Father over the gratification of the flesh, and he laid down his life willingly to be crucified, to be mocked and beaten, spit upon, and buried. But he doesn't just call him the faithful witness. He says the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. You see, Jesus was put to death. He was faithful even to the point of death, but he did not stay dead. He rose on the third day. You see, Christmas leads to Easter. Christmas finds its culmination at Easter. 
That Jesus, God in the flesh, he came to earth to dwell among us. He lived sinlessly. He laid down his life on the cross. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, defeating death, proving that he really was who he said he was. The firstborn here, he says the firstborn from the dead. That, that speaks to preeminence. If I say that I'm the, the firstborn among my siblings, I am the oldest. I was the first one to come through my mother's womb. But in Scripture, the firstborn refers to a point of preeminence, of rank. That Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. All who belong to him shall be raised. Amen? We believe that a resurrection day will come when all who belong to him will be raised to be with him eternally. But among all who will be raised, Jesus is preeminent. He is Lord. And he here says he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus was rejected by men, but he was exalted by God. We like to sing that uh, eschatological Christmas song, I like to call it. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. That stuff hasn't happened yet. That didn't happen at Christmas. Why do we sing about it? Because his first coming at Christmas points us to another coming when he shall reign as king over all the kings of the earth. Philippians 2, Paul says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the, the faithful son. Number two, he is the loving Savior. He's the loving Savior. There in verse five, he says, to him who loved us. You see, Jesus' act of obedience to the Father was also an act of love towards us. The New King James here says loved. It sounds like it's a past tense. The Greek is actually a present active participle, which means he loves us would be a better translation. He loves us. Not only did he love you when he laid down his life on the cross, not only did he love you when he gave himself for your sins, but even now, presently, I can tell you with confidence that Jesus loves you. You can sing the children's song uh, unashamed and unequivocally. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible, the holy, inerrant, infallible word of God tells me so. He washed us, he says, washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is the effect of Jesus' obedience to the Father when we put our trust in him. You see, Jesus laid down his life on the cross, but he wasn't doing it just to be an example of sacrifice. Jesus didn't lay down his life just so he could show us how to love people, but there was an effect that it has on those who believe in him. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ alone, the effect is this. He has washed you and cleansed you from all your sins with his own blood. Friends, if you've been born again, you can say, Confidently, what John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to 
cleanse us, to wash us from all unrighteousness. We are clean and holy and beloved in the sight of God because we have been washed in the blood of Christ. And he says that he's made us kings and priests to, God and, to his God and Father. You see, when we were born again, when we were washed in the blood of Christ and made pure in his sight, when we became Christians, we were united with Christ. We just spent a whole lot of time in the book of Ephesians talking about being in Christ, one with Christ. We were united to Christ and united with him. We are exalted with him. That, that makes some of us cringe a little bit to think about our exaltation. But if we are in Christ and God the Father has exalted Christ, then he has also exalted us who are in Christ. He says as kings, when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom on earth, we will reign with him. Now he is preeminent. He reigns supreme, but we will reign with him over all the earth. He's made us kings and priests. And you know that priests were the ones whose job it was to go into the temple to carry the sacrifices into the very presence of God. And now Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice. There is no more sacrifice to be made. And we as priests have access to the presence of God in him. We can come to God at any time and say, Lord, I need to talk to you. You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go to anyone who is more spiritual than you to pray for you. But you yourself can go to God in prayer. And you shall one day live in the presence of God for all eternity. We've been exalted with Christ as kings and priests. He's the, the faithful son. He's the loving savior. And then third, he's the coming judge. He's the coming judge. He says in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds. That sounds dramatic, doesn't it? He's coming with clouds. John didn't just choose those words flippantly, but by what John knows, what has been revealed to him, Jesus is coming will fulfill the words of the prophet Daniel. Some of you just finished reading Daniel in your discipleship groups. Daniel 7 says this, he says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient, ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus shall come. He will come with the clouds, and in so doing, he will fulfill every word ever spoken about him by the prophets. Jesus is coming again, and he says this, that every eye will see him. Now, when Jesus came the first time, not all that many people were there to witness it. Just a carpenter, a teenage girl, some nasty, smelly shepherds. Eventually, some wise men showed up late. Not many saw him when he came the first time. He came humbly. 
But John tells us here that when he comes again, when he comes with the clouds, he will come and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. No one will be able to deny his divinity. Nobody will be able to deny his power. No one will be able to deny his glory. He will not come veiled as he did the first time, but he will come with all his glory on display when he returns. He says when he comes again, everyone will see his glory on full display. He says even those who pierced him. Israel gets a special mention here. He's not talking about the four soldiers who actually nailed him to the cross and pierced his side. But to those who rejected him, John says that he came to his own and his own received him not. They did not recognize their Messiah for who he was when he came the first time. He didn't come like they expected. He didn't come as the conquering king. He came as a humble baby in a manger. But he says when he comes again, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will what? Mourn because of him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Israel will be first in line of the mourners because they rejected their king. And when he comes again, they'll realize what they have done. And who he was. But all the nations will mourn. This isn't a sorrow that leads to repentance. This is a fear. This is a trembling over the judgment that he will bring with him. You see, when Jesus comes again, for those who belong to him, that coming is glorious. We look forward to the day. When Jesus comes again and establishes his rule on the earth and sets all things right, brings justice to every corner of the earth. We look forward to that. But for the nations and the people and the tribes who are in their sins. Friends, his coming is not something to be anticipated. But feared. And those who are not right with God at his coming shall Fear him. In the same book, in Revelation, uh, in chapter 6, he speaks of what is to come. He says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The coming of Jesus for those who are not ready to meet him will be so fearful that it would seem better for them to have a mountain and a rock fall on them and kill them than to have to stand before him. Friends, I don't know where your hearts are. I cannot see where you stand in your relationship with God. You may be one who knows Jesus is coming and that excites you and you're looking forward to being with him. And I hope that's where you are. But friend, if he comes and you're not ready, you're going to be lumped in with the nations and the tribes and the peoples who are not ready and you will mourn. You will fear and tremble and cry out, wishing death on yourself. Because you realize there's no escape from his judgment. 
Jesus is coming as a judge. And for, the, for those who are still in their sins, that is a fearful thing. You see, if you, here's the point I want to make in all this. If you see Jesus at Christmas only as the baby in the manger, you can simply enjoy that scene and then move on. You can go enjoy all the, the warmth and the nostalgia and the family gatherings and the food and think nothing else of him. And December 26th will roll around and you'll pack up the nativity scene and go on with your life. But if when you look at Jesus when he was born and you see not merely a baby, but you see the glory of the very Son of God, who was and is and is to come, whose spirit is the very spirit of the church, the one who was faithful to reveal the Father even unto death, the one who loves people so much that he washes away their sins, and the one who is coming to judge all nations. You can't just walk away from that scene. And nothing change. If you see Jesus for who he is, you see him in all of his glory, it will change you. One way or the other, it will change you. You can harden your heart and become indifferent to it and remain in your sins. You might enjoy the season, but you'll still be dead in your sins. Where you can submit to him in holy reverence, yielding yourself completely to him, that he may wash you and cleanse you, rid you of all of your sins, give you a new heart with new desires, and live the rest of your days for his glory. This is the glory of the Christ of Christmas. This is what we need to see every time we look at the baby in the manger. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear your word. My words will never change anyone's heart. But I pray that even now the Holy Spirit would reveal the truth and your glory to our hearts. Even so come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to that day. And we're confident that because you kept every promise and came the first time, you will keep every other promise and come again. And I pray that those who are here this morning, who hear this message, who are not ready, would repent and come to you for mercy, that they may be made ready. In Jesus' name, amen.